0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Life after a mass shooting is something the people of Las Vegas are now trying to navigate. But they have some help from survivors of the Aurora Theater shooting. Maria Carbonell and her daughter Annalise Padilla are just back from Vegas, where they met with firefighters and other first responders. And welcome to you both. Hi. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. Uh, pleased that you could join us. You were at that midnight showing of Batman in 2012 when a gunman killed a dozen people, injured many others. And you went to Vegas with other people who got tangled up in both Aurora and the Columbine Massacre. Maria, why did you want to make the trip to Vegas?
1: Um, I wanted to go so that whenever I met with people that I could let them know that it's okay. That it can get better. I think a lot of times when people think about surviving a mass shooting, that it can be this. Well, it is. It's a horrible thing to go through, and you, when you're right after, you just don't know how life can possibly get back to normal. And I wanted to show that yes, it can. Um, it's different. You're never. You're never going to be that person that you were before. And you can embrace it because you really don't have a choice
0: how long did it take for you to think things were normal again was that a matter of months or years
1: i don't think you ever really i don't i guess what's normal it no. is what's
0: or that you were okay
1: um it took a while it took a while <laughs> a while But, you know, but again, it's different. Like some days you feel completely okay. Even now it's been over five years. There's some days where I'm like, yes, I'm okay. But then there's other days where I feel like I'm back at square one. And for me, what I learned it's to be okay with those moments and say, yes, I feel out of control. I feel all of that pain. I feel all of that anxiety. But I know that it's going to pass.
0: And that there can be steps forward and steps back. I want to say that this trip was part of an effort called Project Hope Baskets, organized by Aurora survivors Katie and Caleb Medley and their sister Megan. And you all delivered baskets full of food, water, sports drinks, other items. And uh, Annalise, how would you say um, the, the trip went in terms of the connections that you made and the conversations you were able to have?
2: Um, I think the trip went really well. Um, Of course, some parts of it were hard, but I think for, you know, the people who are in Vegas, it's comforting to see people like us who are mostly normal, you know, just doing everyday things, seeing that we're okay. And like what my mom said, just like that finding a a new normal is possible. Um, And I think it was really cool to spend time with like Katie and Kayla, because, you know, I've never really like spoke to them, but during this time it was, you know, pretty awesome to actually, you know, spend that time with them, but it was also kind of hard to, you know, knowing Caleb's situation, knowing that I walked out of, you know, the theater physically okay, but like for him, his like life has forever changed and it just, you know, reminds you to just be grateful, you know, every day because things could have been a lot worse.
0: I'll say that uh, Caleb Medley was pretty profoundly injured in the Aurora theater shooting and, Uh, lost his ability to move much of his body, and his speech is deeply affected. You wanted to meet with victims but weren't able to in the end, so you met with first responders. And uh, what were those conversations like, Maria?
1: Um, Something that I heard a few times um, was I had a conversation with a detective at um, the Las Vegas um, PD headquarters, and I remember he said to me, he was like, Aurora changed everything. And, and I found that really kind of profound hearing that.
0: What do you Uh, think he meant?
1: Um, about the way that the country looked at safety. You know, he went into telling me about how, and this is a police detective (laughs) about how he thought about his own safety going to a movie theater and how that what happened to us changed that for him but then also i had a we, I, we went to the um las vegas resiliency center and and something that i heard from a social worker there was yes aurora changed things and the way she explained it, it was we because of what happened to you guys the, and to you know like san bernardino and these other mass shootings, because of what happened to us, when this happened to them, they had an idea of what to do. Where here in Aurora, it took two years for us to get our Resiliency Center put together. Las Vegas had theirs in two weeks.
0: And a Resiliency Center is there for the sort of social support of the victims. Is that right?
1: Yes. Um, In Vegas, they were able to put together a place where they were able to meet with victims advocates, social workers, mental health professionals, so that the survivors there in Vegas and could go and get resources. And they were able to do that in two weeks, which was amazing.
0: Oh, and different from what you experienced after the Aurora Theater shooting. Is there still a sense walking around Las Vegas, Annalise, that something terrible happened there? I, I know that you visited a sort of makeshift memorial that's at the welcome to Vegas sign, but I suppose beyond that very visible symbol. Do you feel it when you're walking around that town?
2: Um, well I think you can tell that you know, that they're trying to act like everything's okay, that everything's normal, but you can just tell that something's not right. And you know, for it being a Halloween weekend it was pretty empty. You know, the strip wasn't as full as like what I'm usually used to seeing. Um yeah, it was it was kinda weird, honestly.
1: Yeah, and I can add to that, um, you know, just going into, you know, Vegas is a place for fun. And, you know, you would go into like the restaurants or to the bars and the, you could, you could almost see it in the faces of the people that were working. Just that kind of. Solemn, just sadness.
0: We know that the hospitality workers were often closely connected to the shooting because people sought refuge in casinos and restaurants and things like that.
1: Yes. And I mean, and I don't and if you've ever been to Vegas, you know, it's imagine being somewhere like the Cosmopolitan, and it's this beautiful casino. And imagine just suddenly thousands of people running in there in absolute terror. And what that does to the employees that work there. So, I mean, this just doesn't affect, you know, the people that were at the concert. It's everyone in that vicinity. I I do
0: want to talk about the the nature of the victims, because one thing that strikes me about the Vegas shooting is how many people were from out of town. Yes. And I gather that means many survivors return to a community where... They don't have a tight-knit group of people who experienced the same thing. Uh, You know, so many of the people in that theater in Aurora were locals and had the connection of of community right there. Have you given thought to that, Annalise, this notion that someone who is from, you know, Wisconsin or Rhode Island flies back and may not have a tight-knit community like Aurora did?
2: Yeah, I actually was, I think they said... um... Of 20,000 people that were there that night, only 2,000 were actually from the state of Nevada. Mm -hmm. And, you know, me, I was 15 at the time of the shooting. And, you know, I had to go back to school like two weeks after. And I can't imagine, you know, having going to go back to a school in a different state and not having my teachers, like, you know, really understand. Or, you know, it's just like it was a lot easier to, you know, live, to kind of go back to normal when people around you, you know, experience the same thing that you did.
0: Clearly, the country has not addressed the root cause of mass shootings because they keep happening. And obviously, there are many views on what the root cause is. But do you two expect that you're going to be comforting more victims in future attacks? Are you just sort of geared up for that, Maria?
1: I kind of, I hate to say it, but it is our new normal. You know, when I went to the memorial... Um, there in Vegas, um, one of the first images that popped in my mind were walking up to my memorial, our memorial here in Aurora and seeing 12 crosses. Never, when I think about when I walked to my memorial and I went and I saw Vegas's The image of 58 crosses Hmm. was so heartbreaking because I thought about um, Alex Sullivan's mom, Terry. Let
0: me say that Alex was in the theater with you and and lost his life.
1: And I just thought, there are 58 Terrys now.
0: It it was hard to absorb the scale, in other words.
1: And I think... And, you know, we we all hear it, but when you actually see it, fifty eight crosses, like fifty eight victims, there there isn't words for it. It's, and I it's sad to say, but I we have to accept that. Yeah, this is more than likely going to happen again. So, what do we do?
0: Annalise, are you braced for more of these?
1: I'm sorry. What was that?
0: Are you braced for more of these kinds of mass shootings? Do you think?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, like, after what happened to us, maybe something would change, you know, our country would wake up, you know, something would be done to put a stop to it, but, like, at this point, I'm not even sure there is anything to do about it, you know, it's not political, I I honestly just, I don't know, and I just hope it doesn't get worse, I mean, 58 you know, it was a lot. And I'm just hoping that we can do something in the future that stops it from being on that big of a scale.
0: Maria, just briefly, to to speak to the kind of disseminated nature of the victims here, I I understand that just before you left for the Vegas trip, you met a shooting survivor randomly at a bar in Colorado.
1: Yeah, um, it was the uh, Sunday before, and we left on Thursday, so it was the Sunday before, and I was... After my work shift I went to a local bar here in Aurora and um I sat down next to this gal and I didn't know her. It was an open seat at the bar and I observed this female walk up to her and was like, "Hey, how you doing?" And I was just kind of listening to the conversation and the um the girl that came up to her was like, "Oh, I've been thinking about you." And it was just like, oh, I hope you're doing well. And then I heard the um, lady that was sitting next to me is like, yeah, you know, we're okay. And she had mentioned Vegas, and so I realized that oh, she was in the Vegas shooting. And so after after the woman that was talking to her left, I uh, I looked at her and I said, um, hey, um, I was at the Aurora, um, I was at the Aurora shooting, and um i said welcome to the club and we grabbed our beers and she was like i won't say what she said because it's a we don't want to get in trouble but i was like cheers and we cheers we cheersed our coors light and we took a drink but i was like yeah welcome to the club
0: welcome to the club such a dark club to be a part of thanks to both of you for sharing your experiences with us we appreciate it
1: thank you no problem
0: we heard from Maria Carbonell and her daughter Annelise Padilla, survivors of the Aurora Theater shooting. They're just back from Las Vegas, where they met people affected by the mass shooting there. The trip was part, part of Project Hope Baskets. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An 11-year-old from Lone Tree is America's top young scientist. Gitanjali Rao earned that title by inventing a new test for lead in drinking water. She has won $25,000 in this Young Science Challenge. And Gitanjali, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: This contest asks kids 5th through 8th grade to solve an everyday problem, what inspired you to work with lead in water?
3: Um, so I've been following the Flint water crisis for about two years now mm. and I thought about creating a device when I saw my parents testing for lead in our water using the test strips and I realized that it wasn't a reliable process and I wanted to do something to change this not only for my parents but for the residents of Flint and places like Flint around the world.
0: This means you started paying attention to the Flint crisis when you were about nine I gather. Yes. Wow, okay. And right now if you want to test your water, what you go, You buy these strips, and what, what doesn't quite work about them, do you think?
3: Um, so there are two main ways to test um, for lead in our water, or just water quality in general. One is the test strips, and the other one is sending our water off to the EPA. The test strips, on one hand, are easy to use and fast, but they're not accurate. And sending our water off to the EPA is accurate, but it's expensive. Uh, well, it requires expensive equipment, and it's time-consuming.
0: Yeah. And so your invention is called... Say it for me. Tethys. Tethys, after the Greek goddess of fresh water. Is that right? Yes. And you've got one here. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a plastic box, uh, smaller than a bread box. Mm. I don't know who has bread boxes anymore. (laughs) But um, briefly, how does it work?
3: Um, so it's a very simple process. Um, and it, it includes three main parts, um, a core device, housing processor with a Bluetooth extension and a nine volt battery, and a slot to insert a disposable cartridge.
0: And this connects to your smartphone.
3: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it connects to your smartphone to display the results of safe um, safe water status, slightly contaminated or critical. So you just attach a disposable cartridge to the device itself and dip the cartridge in the water you wish to test. Once you do that, you pull out your smartphone and um, che- um, connect over Bluetooth and check your status.
0: Okay. And do you think this would be very expensive if it were offered on the market?
3: Um. Right now, at this point, it is only $20. And um, once it's manufactured at scale, the pricing significantly reduces as well.
0: You know what impresses me, Katanjali, is that you can speak to all kinds of audiences. So I feel like you are explaining very clearly here in everyday terms, how this works. But you had to submit this idea in a video. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was to a different audience. Yes. That's to the folks at the contest. I have to just play a bit of your video here.
3: All My right. solution proposes using nanotube-based sensors that detect the presence of lead and its compounds. Due to the sensitivity and conductivity of carbon nanotube structures, this sensor can detect lead faster than any other current techniques.
0: Why are you talking so fast?
3: Well, I had to smush a lot of information into one to two minutes
0: And you had to get in a lot of science. You had to demonstrate to the judges that you knew what you were talking about.
3: (laughs) Yes, Uh I did.
0: So from that video, you were selected as a finalist and assigned a mentor, Dr. Kathleen Schaefer, who works at 3M, uh, the company that sponsors this national young scientist contest. What sorts of things did she help you with?
3: Um, my mentor helped me originally with introducing me to nanotube simulation, um, using an application online, <clears throat> and this allowed me to um, experiment with lead. Um, within the carbon nanotubes itself. Um, she and so
0: not to be exposed to it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And she also helped me um, uh, refine my experimentation plans and make sure I had all the safety and disposal requirements into consideration as well, since those are also important aspects.
0: Can you tell me what a nanotube is?
3: Yeah, a carbon nanotube is a um, tube-like structure made out of carbon atoms, and they have um, unique conductivity and... Um, connectivity properties in general, and um, they're measured in one billionth of a meter.
0: That w- is what makes them nano. <laughs> so you put the tethers together and you needed the types of tools that scientists have, like a lab and even a 3D printer. I'll say that you're a seventh grader at STEM School Highlands Ranch. Mm-hmm. So you went to your teachers. What did, what did they think? How did they help?
3: Yeah, Um. so... I got a lot of help from my school STEM school Highlands Ranch. Um, um, first of all, they helped me three D print the outer um, cover of my device and my cartridge, and this allowed me to keep all my um, parts um, within the device intact. Um, one of my other computer science teacher helped me um, develop my user interface further, making it more user friendly. Of course,
0: uh, that's the app, in other words, yes, the user yeah. interface of the app, so that it's it's makes sense to people.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. and um one of the high school chemistry teachers allowed me to use her chemistry lab in order to perform my tests.
0: So it takes a village to raise a lead test kit, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, the end result is that you won $25,000. Yes. What are you going to do with that money?
3: Um, With most of the money, I plan to continue evolving my device um, so that it can be put out into marketing. It can be in everyone's hands. And um. With the rest of the money, I plan to give back to the organizations I volunteer for, such as Children's Kindness Network. And I would also like to um, put the rest into my college fund. Uh, into college. <laughs> You're so
0: sensible. What do you think you'll
3: study? Um, I want to go to MIT to study um, genetics and epidemiology since they allow me to look at different approaches to solve real-world problems out there today.
0: Sounds like you've prepared that. Someone has asked you that before, I can just tell. Do you think that uh, you might be on Shark Tank some someday pitching this lead test kit?
3: I really hope that someday I'll be on Shark Tank. Um, at this point, I'm trying to focus on making sure that my results are accurate, but once it becomes commercially available, um, that could be a very real possibility. Yeah,
0: and I guess this whole project has really made you just think of your own water. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
3: Um, I had um, tried with test strips while I was developing this project and um, it showed like light marks and it wasn't very clear since most of the test strips work on chemical reactions. And um, so while I developed this device, it, it made me think of, if is my water clean? So, And is it? It, it is. Okay. It I'm is.
0: pleased to hear you're drinking clean water. Gitanjali, thanks for being with us. Thank you. She's Gitanjali Rao, a seventh grader at STEM School Highlands Ranch. And her invention of a lead detector won the National Discovery Education 3M Young Scientist Challenge. We'll take a break and then take a peek at what's on Colorado's ballots this election. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's no way next week's election will top the frenzy of 2016. That said, there's a cliche that all politics is local. Next Tuesday, voters around the state will decide on local ballot issues that could change everything from the speed of their Internet service to how close oil rigs are to homes. For a look at what's on the ballot, I'm joined by the deputy director of the Colorado Municipal League. He's Kevin Bommer. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. One of the most contentious issues we hear about these days, especially along the Front Range, is what power local governments have to regulate oil and gas developments. That's the subject of a ballot measure in Broomfield. It would put more weight in these decisions on public health and safety. Do you think we're going to see a lot of these measures in the future, or is, is Broomfield something of an exception?
4: It's a great question, Ryan. I, I really think it's a uh, one-off deal um, this year. It's uh, These types of elections um, occur in a very specific geographic region of the state. Um, there's no other ones on the ballot. So um, I, I really think it's uh, not, a, not a trend.
0: What are the forces, though, that
4: result in something like this landing on the ballot as opposed to being kind of hashed out within city government? Well, you said it. All politics is local. And I mean, we're talking about citizens. Who have concerns. They have the ability to air them at the local level uh, and are doing so. They got an initiative on the ballot voting on it and, you know, come what may from that. So uh, the issue that appears most
0: often on this year's local ballots is related to high-speed internet service. Almost 20 cities and counties have proposals that would allow them to create their own service or partner with private companies. Uh, Dozens of cities across the state have approved similar measures over the last few years. Uh, What makes this year particularly significant, would you say?
4: Well, I'm telling you, I mean, we have had 69 municipalities uh, and 28 counties that have approved uh, allowing their local governments to look into investment in broadband infrastructure, 15, 60 more on the ballot this year. It's important because these votes, these elections, they happen by wide margins, and it's people talking about – what is not happening in their community faster broadband they feel left behind it's significant because we keep hearing at the state house uh, the private sector will solve the problem, certainly just wait it's going to happen and uh, and it may happen, but it's not happening fast enough. That divide is getting larger, and what we 're worried about is the next step is going to be uh, even though it 's not happening fast enough let 's preempt local governments even more uh, by restricting what they can do, even if they do. Uh, citizens do vote for uh, broadband infrastructure. You're
0: anticipating those kinds of rules potentially coming down the pike? Is that what I hear you saying?
4: You know, the rumor mill churns a lot at the statehouse. Uh um, uh, But we certainly saw the discussion happening at the end of last session. Uh, It's been talked about uh, even this fall that we might see preemption legislation so that the only avenue will be to Wait and see if the private sector makes an investment. Okay, because I'll just say by way of background, it was a
0: state law that said communities had to vote on this if they were going to move ahead, that they couldn't just do that, you know, with a vote of the city council, for instance. You're saying that there may be further limitations put on communities that do uh, opt for their own broadband path uh, but, but this question of,
4: of should governments be competing with private industry really must be at the core of this, right? Well, in rural Colorado, uh, where you see most of these questions being passed, uh, where there is infrastructure investment by the private sector, it's either inadequate uh, or insufficient. What really those municipalities are looking at is partnering with the private sector, um, getting the election that you mentioned, the 2005 legislation. That was a compromise with the, with the industry then uh, on what started out as a straight-up preemption. Huh? But we want to have uh, the ability to partner with the private sector. And if that means uh, through the process that there's public sector investment in infrastructure and the private sector runs the service uh, and it gets them uh, – it narrows that digital divide a little bit, then hallelujah. The community that's taken the lead on this
0: is Longmont. In 2011, voters passed a measure allowing the city to offer high-speed internet. The system's almost built out there now, but that's a metro area. On the other hand, many rural communities have passed these measures, and nothing's been done since to build or improve their connections. So even when rural voters approve measures like these, they aren't necessarily overnight getting improved service, I gather.
4: No, the, uh, a successful election only allows the conversation to start, which was the, which was the compromise back in two thousand five. You can't put together a plan if you're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, so no, you have a successful election. It doesn't put one inch of fiber in the ground, and it certainly doesn't light it up. But it allows the local government or local governments to start having a conversation about how they can do it. And again, that's not to the exclusion of private industry, because it might very well be partnering with them. Hopefully in partnership. Exactly. Have any of those been produced? You're really seeing um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, rural Colorado, Western Slope uh, collaboration and discussion. Probably not near enough yet, Ryan, because uh, unfortunately, we keep... Having to be distracted by discussions of preemption instead of cooperation—it's really frustrating. To another familiar issue now, as we
0: look at what's on ballots across the state in next week's election, uh, recreational marijuana. Several cities are looking at allowing it or taxing sales. Any trends you see
4: there, Kevin? Boy, I tell you, it's uh, so. I've been uh, working on this issue uh, since two thousand nine, uh, both medical and then recreational, uh, both in the state house and with our members. Uh, you know I think the trend is is really interesting is is particularly with recreational we're still trying to uh get our hands or our heads around what this evolving issue of recreational marijuana means and where it's going in the future. You had few municipalities, you know, uh, right off the bat that uh, fully participated in licensing, but you had a whole lot, and currently still 168 that have not. 168? Yes. Who have just said, we we want no part of recreation. Correct. Mm-hmm. But we've got three um, questions uh, on the ballot this year. Uh, Alamosa, Monta Vista, and Rocky Ford will be voting on whether or not to allow retail sales. All in and, the southern part of the state. Yeah. And so I think you're seeing... Um, Uh, A slow um, process where municipalities, uh, either by the council putting it on the election or citizens referring a question, uh, looking at whether or not it's right for them. And that's okay to take your time and do it right. Yeah. Let other people dip their toes in the water first and then see if you'd like to join them. Denver has a series of
0: questions on the ballot totaling almost a billion dollars for construction and repairs to everything from parks to health centers to fire stations. We've broken down that bond package, and you can read it at cprnews.org. Very briefly, voters in six Colorado counties won't have elections next week because of a lack of candidates or a lack of issues. Is there a bigger story there, or does that happen every election?
4: You know, I've, I've heard a lot about that. It does happen uh, from school boards to counties, even small municipalities. If uh, they don't have enough candidates to uh, run for office, then they can cancel their election and uh, it, it you happens. You don't read that
0: as a as a threat to the democracy. Uh, I don't. I don't. No. OK. OK. Thanks for the context, Kevin. We appreciate it. You bet. Kevin Bomber is deputy director of the Colorado Municipal League. Election Day is next week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A playwright ran across an article that she just couldn't get out of her head. It focused on a researcher at Princeton University who was investigating where prejudice comes from, what the root of racism is. And that's the inspiration behind the show, Smart People. It's on now at the Denver Center. Nataki Garrett is the director locally, and welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So the playwright is Lydia Diamond. And what made you want to take on her script?
5: Um, I've always loved Lydia Diamond's work. um, uh, But this one in particular, I felt was really important, especially in this time. I arrived in Denver um, about 10 months ago. About three weeks uh, after I arrived, there was a march of 750,000 people uh, supporting women's rights. And what occurred to me in those moments was we are um, uh, at a time in our culture where people are looking for voices that reflect their values. And um, so I went on my search for a play that might reflect where we are and also might um, ask us to take a look at how we got here.
0: And that deals much more, I think, with race than gender in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does
5: with both, though. It's both race and gender. Um, in There's featured in the play the Uh, only uh, Asian American female tenured professor at Harvard. Um, uh, There are these ideas around what it takes for her to have her job and, and uh, what it means to be so singular in a in a in a culture that um, uh, that doesn't necessarily inspire somebody like her to exist in the world.
0: There are four main characters. Valerie is an aspiring actress. She is African American. Ginny is a Chinese Japanese American psychology professor at Harvard. There's Jackson, an aspiring black doctor, and a neuroscientist, Brian White. Um, he is white and is researching whether white people are biologically racist. <laughs> uh, the playwright, again, Lydia Diamond, has said that racism cuts all ways, no one is exempt. H- how is that point played out in this show?
5: Um, I, I think that there are, uh, it, it's it's first through the study that Brian uh, gets caught up in this quagmire of what it means to study racism in America. Genetically, um, even. Yes, exactly. And then there are these mishaps that happen throughout the play where uh, people show up with their own biases and their own prejudices and uh, people who you don't necessarily equate with um, having um, prejudice uh, walk up to any person and determine who they are by the the way that they look. And then, mm. of course, the hijinks of that is, no, I'm the doctor or I'm the, I actually am uh, the, um, the youngest Asian-American uh, professor in the United States and, and I have all these credentials and I am, you know, I have this ability, but people don't assume that by looking at you. The only one who doesn't fall into that category, of course, is Brian White, who um, people just naturally assume that he's all the things that, um, that you think of when you see him. Um, and he's the one who has the, 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 the most foibles in the play.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new play, Smart People, at the Denver Center. Nataki Garrett is the director. And uh, the play is actually said at the beginning of Barack Obama's first term. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why do you think the playwright made that choice? It's
5: at the onset of the election, so it actually starts at the primary and moves through, it ends right at the election. Um, Lydia started writing this in 2007. That's when she first started reading the article. She's a very slow writer. She does a lot of uh, study of whatever the central idea is, and so it took her seven years to really get to the nucleus of what she wanted this play to be. But it occurs Um, to me
0: that that time in history was, was was so replete with hope that we had reached a post racial America. Right you
5: know? and I think that's why in 2014 when she finally completed the play she wanted to go back to the root. So uh, 2014 for me was a time when more people than, than I could imagine were explaining to me that what I was experiencing was not racism because racism was over yeah. and so to go back to the root of it, to go back to 2017 when we were a culture, a society that was pregnant with the possibility of something new um, and so no matter where you fell on the political Spectrum. This idea that you were that we were burgeoning as a society to to embark on something that was uh, the first, the very first time, and it was also the very first time the possibility of a woman becoming president uh, in the United States. Not, maybe not the very first time. Not the but very first time. The but first time, time that it, it was something that that we that we felt was possible, mm. um, and the very first time the possibility of a person of color uh, inhabiting that particular job. And so I think that you go back to the beginning um, where we were. We were so hopeful and idealistic. And sometimes when when you're idealistic, you walk through the world with a certain kind of blinder. You can't actually see the whole picture um, because you're looking at what's ahead of you. And the play really focuses on what it means to look only ahead and not not broadly enough.
0: And I think many of the characters, if you ask them, would not think of themselves as racist. They're they're academics. They're very smart people. And yet they have this realization that their high IQ mm-hmm. is not going to resolve their struggles with race.
5: No, or anything or, or human connection that you can be as smart as you want to be, but, um, but you have to have emotional intelligence in order to uh, make real connections.
0: Now, this all sounds quite heavy, but this is a comedy. It is a comedy. Uh-huh. Um, Which is, it's, it's funny to think of, of comedy as a vehicle for some of these issues. Mm-hmm. How do you think that works?
5: Um, again, I think it's the, the hijinks of, uh, I believe that comedy is reflective. Um, I think that we go see comedy because um, sometimes it's easier to swallow uh, the truth about who we are uh, when we are given an opportunity to laugh at ourselves.
0: When is there a laugh out loud moment for you in smart people?
5: Um. oh, I can't tell you without giving the story okay. away. Um, but there are so many. And most of it is you laugh out loud because you go, oh, my God, I hate it when that happens. Or, oh, wow, me too. As opposed to laughing at somebody's misfortune or laughing at somebody's situation, you end up laughing at how reflective it is for you.
0: In a review in Westward, uh, a critic wrote that this was, quote, a well-put-together production, intelligent But said that it didn't go deep enough, adding, you may chat on the way home about your own experiences with race, but you don't wake up the next morning with the play vibrating in your mind, creating an urgency to fight the poison in your own life. It's a, it's a tall order, I suppose, it for is. any production. But what do you think?
5: What I think about that is I remember when Spike Lee first started making movies. The director, and, yeah. Yes, the uh, film director. And uh, there was this sense that he wasn't going far enough. And uh, one of the things that uh, he said in an interview was, is it my job to speak to all of the issues um, around race in America? And so I don't believe it's, it was Lydia's job to... Um, to uh, speak to all of the ways in which we need to deal with these issues, um, she speaks to this specific way, and it's very specific to these people who are experiencing it. And um, and so it's not going to be all of the things. Often we ought, we ask um, playwrights of color to cover all of it, you know, to be mm. the ones to carry everything. What is the
0: angle, do you think, of this production?
5: This production is uh, very intelligent, mostly liberal. Um, uh, liberal-minded people um, also have to do some work. And that's what the play is about. It's not about, you know, a Klan hat-wearing um, cross-burning racists. It's about... Um, actually granular racism, unconscious bias, ways in which you you approach prejudice that you may not even be aware of. And that's not going to be um, the big sweeping play about racism. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a, a very reflective play about your own individual racism. As
0: you mentioned, Nataki, that you've been with the Denver Center for just shy of a year. And you actually came into this role a few months before the theater company's artistic director, Kent Thompson, left. And the organization has said that it's focused on diversity. Where do you see room for improvement at the Denver Center?
5: I see room for improvement at the Denver Center and in the American theater system in all the ways you can imagine. Um, I believe that. So, who's
0: writing these Who's plays? writing? Who's, who's but starring? But I think in
5: them? it's 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 about who's writing. It's about who's on our stages. It's about who's rubbing elbows in the audience. It's about who's leading these organizations. Um, I think that this push towards uh, uh, a more inclusive, uh, more equitable and diverse. Uh, world is going to require a real active um, push as opposed to talking about how things should change.
0: Do you think you're going to have to get out of the theater complex and do performances elsewhere to make that happen? Well, we
5: already do through our education program. We, we do Shakespeare in the parking lot. We go to schools all over uh, the uh, is it seven counties in Denver? I'm still learning. Um, uh, in metro Denver, yeah. it might be seven. Yeah. I suppose it, where
0: you draw the yeah. line depends. Yeah, so,
5: so I, I, we go all over the place. and so, But I also think it's about communicating with those communities and finding out what they need and whether or not there's a way for us to collaborate as opposed to an imperialistic idea where we deliver something, ah. um, uh, a way of, of, of working together.
0: Thanks for being with us.
5: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Nataki Garrett is Associate Artistic Director of the DCPA Theater Company. Smart People is at the Ricketson Theater through November 19th. Arapahoe Basin and Loveland were the first ski areas to open for the season, with others like Keystone and Copper Mountain on track to open next weekend. Earlier this month, we got a snow preview from meteorologist Joel Gratz. His website, Open Snow, is a bookmark for avid skiers and boarders. Gratz spoke with Nathan Heffel.
6: Joel, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. We keep hearing this term La Nina. Uh, the National Weather Service expects La Nina conditions will come together in the Pacific. What could that look like in the mountains and along the Front Range of Colorado?
7: Yep, La Nina or El Nino is one way that we think about forecasting three to six months out into the future. Uh And it's not a perfect way to think about it, but it's one uh, factor that we use. And La Nina, cooler than water or cooler than average water temperatures in the central Pacific Ocean, generally means storm tracks from the northwest uh, over kind of Washington, British Columbia, down over northern Colorado. And oftentimes that means that the central and northern mountains of Colorado – can do very, very well and have average to above average snowfall. So that is one thing trending in the right direction for this upcoming winter. So so give us some uh, maybe ski resorts in the path if La Nina does come together. Sure. So um, all things being equal, and if uh, this upcoming La Nina is like previous La Ninas, we would think of resorts like Steamboat up in the north, resorts along I-70 like Vail, Beaver Creek, uh, Copper, A-Basin, Arapaho Basin, Loveland, uh, Breckenridge, uh, down to Aspen. And then it's a little bit less certain uh, if the northern San Juan mountains, Telluride, Silverton, and then over into the Sawatch into Monarch, Uh, can do well or not. But if it's a strong enough La Nina and we get just a little lucky, uh, almost all of the state could do very, very well.
6: So you're saying even if La Nina develops, it's not kind of a specific thing. This will happen every single time. It could hit other places hard and leave some resorts kind of high and dry?
7: Yeah. So so unfortunately... (laughs) Uh, La Nina, El Nino, and all of the other factors are not one-to-one correlations with snowfall. They just go into the scheme of uh, possibly influencing the weather that we will see over the winter. So for La Nina, this northwestern storm track, if that storm track shifts just a hair west, all of the mountains of Colorado will do phenomenally well. And if it shifts just a hair east... Uh, then the eastern mountains might do a little bit better and some of the mountains I just mentioned might not do as well. So even though La Nina's building and that... Gives us confidence that we could be average to above average uh, with snowfall this winter. It's just not a slam dunk. And uh, like most things in weather and especially three to six months forecasts, it's very hard to know for sure.
6: Now, I I remember last year you predicted Colorado would recover well from a dry fall, and you turned out to be right about that. So how do you think this upcoming season will compare to last winter's?
7: Yeah. So so last winter, we were dry through much of November, and people were, to use a technical term, freaking out uh, <laughs> about the lack of snowfall. Uh, but the statistics said last year that we would see uh, even dry start years uh, almost always or at least two-thirds of the time recover uh, to average or above-average snowfall by the holidays, and that wound up being right. So for this year... Uh, Unfortunately, this early season snow that we're seeing doesn't have much predictive uh, capacity to tell us what the rest of the year will look like. So while the storm track is already active, La Nina is building, which is a good indication, and some of the longer range models do show and agree that La Nina will bring plenty of snow. I don't have much confidence beyond saying some factors look good. I am hopeful, uh, but that's as much as we can say at this point.
6: And, you know, of course, you said it's very difficult to predict at this point which days will be good ski days, especially months out. But when do you recommend people start planning their trips?
7: Sure. Well, it, this this goes on a continuum. So if you have to plan around a trip for a school break or a holiday from work, then obviously you don't have much flexibility. And in that case, I would say you have to shift your thinking, uh, uh, That powder will just be an added bonus because you can't control it too much, right? Mm. And so you think about who you go with or doing some other activities like snowmobiling or horse-drawn sleigh rides or or whatever it might be outside of skiing. And if it happens to snow a lot, that's a great bonus. But if you have some flexibility in your schedule, what I recommend is about 7 to 10 days away from uh, your trip time, that's when you can start seeing a trend toward snowier than average drier than average cooler warmer something like that and you can you can go toward those snowy and cooler periods and then somewhere around three to five days before the storm that's when we start having enough confidence that i tell people to kind of clear their schedules and to to lock in where they might want to go what else should
6: skiers and snowboarders keep in mind going to the season is there maybe another resort that's gonna jump on board here and be hey we're gonna open up here in a couple weeks
7: Well, so so something to keep in mind actually this very early season with with the early season snowfalls is that a lot of people like to hike uphill and earn their turns and it's usually called alpine touring. And this early in the season, when we see one to two feet of snow blanket the ski areas, a lot of people say, Hey, I'm going to run up to the ski areas. I'm going to go hike uphill and, and make some turns. And just something to keep in mind is that there's a lot of early season maintenance going on. There's snowmaking, they're finishing up summer projects. And some resorts might be okay with allowing early season hiking, and some resorts might not want to do that. So it's best to call ahead. But there are backcountry areas, too, that if you're kind of jonesing for snow, and we do get some snow early this season, uh, that you can go to. But as the Colorado Avalanche Information Center would say, if there is enough snow to ride, there is enough snow to slide. So not to kind of let your guard down, even though it's early in October.
6: Is that also called skinning or is that a different thing where people actually go uphill and ski uphill and things like that?
7: That's exactly right. So skinning, you put these skins on the bottom of your skis. They stick to the bottom of your skis and kind of have um, hair in a sense, synthetic hair that goes in one direction to allow your skin or your ski to go uphill, but it won't slide back downhill. So that allows you in a sense to hike uphill on your skis. Then you take those skins off the bottom of your skis and you get to ski down. And it's a wonderful way to get a workout and earn the turns that you're going to enjoy. Joel, thanks for uh, being with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Meteorologist Joel Gratz from opensnow.com, Outside Magazine, once called him Snowstradamus. He spoke to Nathan Heffel earlier this month. Finally today for Halloween, our colleagues at CPR's Open Air compiled a list of 10 favorite scary music videos that aren't thriller. And we're going to leave you with a track that made the list, Vampire Again by Marlon Williams. Well, it's
8: Halloween again. And L.A. is a boy. Everybody's looking like they Wish they'd stayed inside And they were watching Frankenstein In their beds and on their phones Not me, baby Tonight I'm really living I'm a vampire again And I'm coming for you Open up your window Cause I'm about to sail in You can call mama But she won't know what to do I'm a vampire again mm. It's been a long time waiting But I'm happy to you I can smell you from a thousand yards Fresh white man. Felt like only yesterday I was as weak as Woody Allen Now I stand as proud and tall As the home you were born I'm a vampire again And I'm coming for you So keep that window open I'm a swooper and you know it Cry for my mother But she won't know what to. I'm a vampire again Mm -hmm.
0: That is a crooning vampire. He's Marlon Williams with Vampire Again. It's one of open-air host Alicia Sweeney's 10 favorite scary music videos that aren't thriller. You can find the list at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. And Facebook, we are CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.
8: Midnight glory. I swear you won't feel a single thing until the year 2025.